Welcome again to the Room of Lies. In this second part of our conversation, we discuss simulation theory as a culmination of the timeless human enterprise of building increasingly more believable worlds with greater immersion, richer and more dangerous challenges, and a suspension of our true identity. We draw a connection between the repeated iterations of designing such a toy world with the Hindu metaphysical notion of cycles of creation and destruction. I advocate that we are not as certain of the nature of reality as is commonly believed, even among scientists, and discuss whether the scientific way would be sufficient to figure out the true nature of reality if this is really a simulation. We then ask some theological questions. First, are humans special in this world? From a creator's point of view, it's particularly interesting to have a simulation inhabitant that asks questions about the nature of the simulation and tries to figure it out. Second, what would be the purpose of a life that is ultimately a simulated game? We then explore a connection between the simulation question and the question of whether our consciousness arises from the brain. We end by examining the distinction if any, between the external world and the perceiving self. If you enjoy these conversations, consider supporting me by donating Dai or Ether to abhranil.eth. That's A-B-H-R-A-N-I-L dot E-T-H. Okay, so now, before I go into what some ancient traditions have said about, uh, about the cosmic game, it's mostly the second part, which is how the universe, regardless of whether or not there exists other people, um, can be seen or realized as a game. Before I go into that, I want to motivate the idea a little bit using modern, um, you know, modern terms. So let's just think about the current human technological obsession with virtual reality and um, ever more realistic games. So, um, I mean, if you think about it, what direction is this current VR obsession going in? The way that I see it, people are interested in creating more and more real and more and more engaging uh, simulations or, or immersions. So what does more real and more engaging mean? So we can kind of break it down. The first thing, well, not in any particular order, but one thing is you want these games to have more intense feedback. So today, what kinds of feedback or inputs do our brain, uh, games have? Like it's usually like some kind of TV screen and you have audio. So you have uh, eye, it's a visual feedback and uh, audio feedback. And we're trying to make the visual feedback more and more realistic by using these VR headsets. Um, but then you can imagine that there are other sensory modalities of the brain like pain um, and vibration and warmth and stuff like that that eventually using uh, better uh, brain machine interface technologies, we can learn to read and write. Mm -hmm. So we can read people's um, you know, many different sensory modalities and we can write to them. So for example, we can make them feel a certain consensual 
amount of pain that they're willing to endure while playing the game because they want it to be more more intense um, um, so there's that you can also probably stimulate certain um, not probably can definitely stimulate some neurons of the brain or some groups of neurons to make the player uh, experience a certain kind of emotion mm -hmm. and if you can imagine a game that does it rightly people will want to play it mm -hmm. you know so there's the aspect of making uh, neural feedback I mean in a way looking at a screen is also neural feedback although it's indirect instead of directly manipulating the neurons we're you're projecting something on a screen that is going through the usual pathway of your eyes and ultimately stimulating your neurons but at some point with better and better brain machine interface technology we can learn to directly manipulate the brain where you're just like lying on your bed and you're just playing this game mm -hmm. so you have ever increasing intensities and realities of uh, feedback um, through the neural pathways um, and the other thing that we would like I think people want games to be more higher stake so you know as you're playing fifa or a racing game that the biggest penalty is that oh I, my car crashed and so if you have a game that really engages you a lot more where the stakes within the game become higher mm -hmm. so for example if you have uh, a certain eventuality in the game that really makes you feel sad by tweaking a certain or like writing to a certain neuron in your brain i feel like people would want to play that you know, so stakes are kind of higher. Um, I mean, there is a lot of room still for people wanting to willfully immerse themselves in a game where the stakes are higher as long as they know, hey, this is just a game. Mm -hmm. There was actually a Black Mirror episode on this hyper real game where it was a horror game and uh, whatever. Oh, that was that was awful. Like, hey. I, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, that episode was so hard to watch. It was an experimental game where this guy went in and uh, he got way more than he bargained for, I guess. Whatever, just so, like died on the spot because it was so intense. Yeah, yeah, Oops. yeah. So anyway, um, and I imagine I remember how he towards the end he couldn't figure out if he had if the game had ever ended. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And his like mom was like, oh, it was so Alzheimer's gross. It was whatever. so bad. Oh, it was so bad. <laughs> I really liked it though. I hated it. I made it. my it friends watch it and they didn't like it. It was so disturbing. It was called play test. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so this is one direction that we can clearly see humans going in. They they want their immersions to be more and more real and in the beginning they'll be like okay let's just make everything happy and funny but then some people there will be a certain niche market for people like no scare me mm -hmm. no make me feel pain no make me feel sad or emotion if there is no real struggle there is no final real release so wait are we going are, are where we're going with this is that all the people in our simulation are the masochists who are like, oh, this whole like Earth human thing looks rough. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's. We'll, we'll get to that. Okay. So that's one aspect in which this uh, human-created simulations today are going. Um, and then the other thing that you would want is imagine a children's game where you know the the challenges are kind of trivial and the 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 climax is kind of like it's not very complicated and the resolution is quick and human adult humans don't find it all that engaging. So, for example, the kinds of things that adult humans are intellectually sophisticated adults like are um, games or stories or movies in which the ch challenge is non-trivial and the answers are not black and white. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the challenges, the more engaging they are and the more non-trivial the answers are, the more the grip of the immersion um, that the immersion has on you. And once again, there will be a 
spectrum of markets. Some mm-hmm. people might want like quick resolution, but other people will want like more engaging, non-trivial challenges. Um, so that's another direction. So the first direction is um, more intense feedback. The second is more non-trivial challenges. So the storytelling would be like more non-trivial. Sometimes you're like, oh, I really don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. In most current games, you kind of know it's very clear what you ought to do. But more sophisticated games, you're like, I don't really know what to do here. And everything that I do gives me a different eventuality. And that's kind of more like real life, isn't it? I want to play this game again and do a different thing. Mm-hmm. Let's see where that takes me. And there's no clear and simple way in which the game is rebuking me. Like It's not telling me, you ought not to do this, but do that. Well, that's kind of like real life. Okay, I want to do this again. So that's the other direction. And then this third direction is you can't really be fully immersed in a game if you all the time you remember that you are in a real world <laughs> just in this game. So in future, and I don't think this future is too far, it would be possible to store away all memory regarding who you are, what world you are in, your memory, your identity, and the fact that you're playing a game, store it away for a temporary period of time in a hard hard disk. Wipe the the neural state of the relevant part of your mind, but in a way that can be restored. And then you enter the game. And in the game, you're kind of born anew because mm-hmm. you have no memory of who you are. And then, but the, I guess people would say, okay, I, I, I only want to do this if you guarantee that I will get my identity back when it when it right. when well and and I would ends. think I would think and get my identity back yeah. with with the experience of the game integrated. Yeah. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. That would be nice, right? That would be nice. That oh yeah, now not only am I back and I have my identity back, I also remember playing this game. It was right. kind of fun. Right. It would, yeah. it would make no sense to play the game if you can't remember it. Yeah, I guess. Like, or maybe unless you're really bored and you don't know what to do with your time. Like, okay, we have a product. There's no way to integrate the game memory back into, but do you still want to play it? Like, okay, I guess whatever. But they would no, that wouldn't be marketable because people would be like, I don't know, I don't know if it's any good, but. <laughs> Well, if you don't have anything else to do, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. okay, let's yeah. not get into that because that's not important. I do really okay. So, <laughs> so I think it needs to be integrated. In a Rick and Morty episode, they actually kind of uh, there was they illustrated the same thing where Rick and Morty go to this like uh, it's like arcade place, except this is arcade place in Rick and Morty's intergalactic world, so mm-hmm. it's so much cooler. And so one of these games is you just kind of enter the game and it wipes the memory of you you are in the real world and Rick enters, uh, Morty. Morty enters the game. Oh, 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 Rick, I don't know what I'm doing. Okay, so Morty enters the game and it just the, it's not like a gimmicky flashy game. You just take on the, you just become this character who's just this regular earth homo sapien dude in contemporary society or maybe like several hundred years back who's just kind of this family guy who has a very regular life and he, you, you were born, you grow up, and you have certain life experiences, and your parents die, and eventually your wife dies, and you are the owner of this textile shop. And one day, as you're climbing up to take uh, uh, like a roll of like, rug or something off the shelf, the, the ladder like slips and you fall, and Rick suddenly comes back into this arcade. I'm like, whoa, 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 what, I just slipped and fell. What, 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 what will happen to my, uh, to, you know, my tapestry shop or whatever? And then Rick is like, oh, relax. I mean, you're just playing a game. And Morty just feels deceived in so many. Like, well, I just lived a whole life in there. 
And Rick said, no, it was just like five minutes, you know. <coughs> so, I mean, you can imagine that although at that time, like Rick felt kind of deceived because Morty just like put him into this. Oh, sorry. Morty felt deceived because Rick just like put him into this game and he didn't know what he was getting into. In future, people might voluntarily suspend their identities. Mm-hmm. I know what this game is and it was kind of fun the last time. So I want to do it again, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, especially because it poses no real risk to my identity and existence in the real world mm-hmm. and every job has been automatized so we have nothing to do <laughs> okay so let's just do this um so there's that okay so the third aspect is voluntarily suspending and forgetting your identity um and only recovering it at the end of the game maybe when you die or whatever okay so i mean does that sound like a sensible direction then like VR. Um, so it sounds like a, a possible direction. Yeah. I think um, it's difficult to say when, um, you know, we, we have we have like capitalist and non-capitalist paradigms of incentive where mm. whatever the market deems fit is, is what where we go or whatever like the state deems fit is where we go. And so so I, I don't. I don't know how quickly I would be to hop on board this idea that yeah. there would be intrinsic um, fiscal incentive yeah. behind certain of those, but I can see I can see a world where because mm. um, we kind of live in it already, where more options yeah. are preferred. So so along the spectrum, certainly this would be one of them. Yeah, if that yeah, makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the way you notice that uh, the way the direction which all of these three uh, upgrades or improvements point is that they all make the game more and more lifelike. Right, right, fidelity. And uh, presumably that's something that people want because that's the direction which all VRs are going in higher and higher resolution, you know, more immersive reality. Well, okay, um, here's, a, here's a fun idea though. Yeah. So, so when we first, like, you know, when, when painters started mm. to... to, to have a sufficient tradition and, and technical facility mm-hmm. um, to render truly lifelike portraits. Yeah, that didn't last forever. Yeah, you know, after a certain point, yeah, yeah, yeah. the the, yeah. the the notion of what should be achieved by that kind of art yeah. um, transformed. So I could see that occurring. Yeah, and then some. Yeah, right. Yeah, then yeah, at yeah. some point, someone's yeah. going to be like, Yeah, we've exhausted yeah. Yeah. Um, faithful renderings of reality. Where yeah. can we push that now? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Um, so. But let's let's for a moment imagine that mm-hmm. humans. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be in these directions, but let's just imagine being a current human, uh, like engineer of of uh, simulated worlds, and you're just like going through iterations as a company or or as a group of designers. You're just going through iterations of tweaking the game engine and the game world to make it like ever more engaging. Um, and here is where I kind of I remember this matrix idea that I, you kind of mentioned before, but there is a scene in the matrix where Morpheus is being held captive by the agents, and they're in this uh, military guarded building, and Neo is about to come and rescue him. But before it happens, uh, Morpheus is being held like bound to a chair in this office room, and Agent Smith is telling him. Uh, what his motivations are for doing what he's doing. But before that, he starts with, um, he kind of tells Morpheus a little bit about the history of the Matrix simulation. 
and he says, um, you know, the first version of the matrix, well, the, the first time that we completely dominated uh, humankind and we wanted to use their bodies for producing energy that we robots need, we wanted to place them in some kind of simulation so that they don't riot or whatever. And the first version of the matrix was utopia. It was the best version of paradise that human minds could ever imagine. But when we um, immerse these human bodies into this kind of a simulation, entire you know fields of crops die. He used the word crop for humans. Mm -hmm. And it's because the human mind rejected the idea of this complete and absolute utopia. So the next version of the matrix was a world much like the real world had been in the middle of the, um, I guess it's like, he said middle of the 19th century, but maybe like the 1990s, mm -hmm. okay, because that's what the matrix world was like with all its trouble and problems and whatever, depression and like, you know, moral and ethical dilemmas and, you know, people dying and you know, sick and hungry people and people not being able to get what they want. And he said, well, and then the people were fine, you know. So I guess, I mean, so the Agent Smith, Agent Smith is not human and he has kind of like a curiosity about what humans are like. And he's a philosophizer of humans. He doesn't like humans, but he wants to talk about them. So he said, I mean, I find it very oddly curious that, you know, humans, they don't really want utopia. They want a world with all of these strifes and problems and not easily, uh, problems that are not easily um, solvable. So with that idea in mind, you can imagine that current day creators of virtual realities and immersions uh, might sometimes want to put some spice in their games by making the problems uh, kind of challenging and sometimes um, you know there's so there's that there's more richness uh, in the world I'm not saying that that has to be the case mm -hmm. but that's at least what like one uh, one point well okay so this, this is I feel like this is a, um, uh, a, a cultural phenomenon that is pretty pervasive and that is this yeah. notion that like we as humans aren't really there there are so many different ways we we, we uh propagate ideas that allow us to deal with discontent or um perpetuate it yeah. you know like there's so many stories that, that we maybe tell ourselves that 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 can help us confirm our own mental states and make sense out of it right like one 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 you know a cynic might be like ah well just bad shit happens to me all the time mm. right that could be a, a narrative a very simple one that they tell themselves or or we can we can even try and give it a um a, a more biological sheen and say like ah we just like physiologically or or or, or neurologically are, are incapable of um experiencing sustained euphoria or happiness yeah. right like yeah. like you, you can you can make the arguments more sophisticated but mm -hmm. like up to a certain point, it's just kind of like, well, you know, what is what is the functional role of these stories in societies, yeah. and and why why do we seem to need them, yeah. um, in order to explain mm. our subjective experiences of reality, mm. which is to me they're all, it's it's I think it kind of goes back to our pattern making proclivities, which is mm. which is that like mm. when given a bunch of data, we want to understand yeah, and find yeah, a pattern, yeah. and so I guess because yeah. by nature our our minds are yeah. kind of chaotic yeah, yeah it goes up it goes down it'd be so nice to have a reason yeah, yeah. as opposed to yeah. just be like oh well yeah. yeah but i also feel like uh if the pattern to be derived or figured out 
in the, the universe or life is too simple, then our brains will like, that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes we kind of twist the world into um, complexities of our own fabrication because we are not content with how simple mm-hmm. it sometimes is. Well, and, and uh, so that's that's that would be so. Yeah. This is where I think that I, I I'm inclined to the sort of like um, interpersonal slash not material but like yeah. less impersonal paradigms of reality. Yeah, and yeah. and it's and it's you know we live in both yeah um you can't you can't really defy the laws of physics you know go jump off a building and try yeah, and have yeah. fun yeah so 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 in an ex- to, to an extent yeah. we we have had to co-evolve capacities that deal with both yeah but there's there's no reason to say that so long as like the um uh costs aren't too great there's no reason to say that we're not grossly misapplying fat like faculties designed to deal with one on the other Mm. So, so it's like, to me, it's like that, that need for pattern making yeah. or sense making yeah. sense making is like a kind of mm. in, to me, like, like it tends to the more human centric side mm. because, because human interactions can be simplified in the sense that like, ah, uh, this person is above me in the hierarchy. I show deference. This person is below me in the hierarchy. I can exert influence or, you, mm. you know, like you can do that kind of paradigm and it's ultimately not that complicated because we all have to have mm-hmm. some, some commonality and how we think about that um but then we would maybe come we you know you would you would get uh what um uh hofstadter calls uh it's like um strange recursion yeah, yeah, you, yeah. You know, strange loops strange loops it, it ref- yeah. like we, we turn that apparatus on our own um awareness uh, or that our awareness turns on itself sort of and, and then it's like Mm-hmm. we we try and use this this pattern making out of out of our own raw sensory experiences or our own thinking of our thinking of our thinking and yeah, it's like yeah. <coughs> that can get super weird really yeah, fast yeah. and and lead to sort of like mm-hmm. to me all sorts of wild conjectures about <laughs> the 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 underlying nature of of our of our minds and how that interacts with the real world and like whether yeah. or not we we have um an ability to exist in a content or discontent or whatever types of states. And, and to me, it's like, it's like applying the wrong tools. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least, yeah. at least it's like, you know, it's just like trying to lift a box with like your, your, yeah, yeah. Um, your eyeballs or something. Yeah, like, it doesn't, yeah. <laughs> like wrong, wrong yeah. muscle. I'm sure someone can do it. <laughs> so, so, okay. So coming back to what I was talking about is if, if for a moment you imagine uh, being a human, let's say it doesn't have to be a current human designer of immersive virtual worlds. A lot of different human professions traditionally are uh, concerned with making or creating worlds of different kinds. So, for example, the engineer might want to build something like uh, a game, but an artist might want to create something like a painting, or a, uh, an author might want to create a world in their story, or the scientist might want to build like a toy model of some sort of a physical world um, or like the mathematician might want to you know create some mathematical model or world and then want to kind of look at how interesting are the properties of this world so if you are a scientist I'll take the position of a scientist because I have personally experienced doing this if you write down a little Python program that describes some system let's say the Lorentz system um, or the Lorentz weather model, which is kind of something that we talked about. It's three differential equations. 
that give rise to some like rich phenomena um, versus you could write down other kinds of rules or laws in your made-up toy world which give rise to pretty trivial and simple phenomena you know um, so to give another example you can talk about cellular automata like the game of life which mm -hmm. was have you heard of the game of life mm -hmm. okay his name was John Conway. He was an Oxford mathematician who came up with the game of life. Now, the rules for the game of life, the appearance, sustenance, and the disappearance of the cells in the game of life are only one among many possible rules. And most of these other rules give rise to games which are not interesting. If you start off those worlds, very soon they die or do something predictable or repetitive. But in the game of life, the rules are such that it keeps producing very complex and rich uh, phenomena. Is it a coincidence that that's the rule that we are all obsessed with? We, we don't care about the other rules. We care about, I think it's called rule 34 or something. <laughs> There's a way to categorize and number the rules. We care about the rule that has given rise to game of life, which is rich. And it's also a Turing complete world, mm -hmm. by the way, using the little... Um, you know, uh, um, entities in the game of life like gliders and whatnot you can actually create a digital computer that can compute anything mm -hmm. and using that you can create a simulation within um, the the game of life so um, and as let's say as a physicist uh, or as a mathematician you might say okay um, let's say that the possible worlds that I might investigate are recursions of this particular um, formula you know, we don't need to get into the details of that, but and let's see what kind of stuff it gives me. And they try a lot of different things and they find one recursive formula that gives them the Mandelbrot set. And although the formula itself is very simple, the structure that it gives rise to the Mandelbrot set is infinitely rich. And it hides different copies of itself within itself and so many like interesting things that people are still studying it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing that we have to admit is that of all possible worlds that humans can create, we seem to really have fetishes for one that are rich and interesting to us. And it kind of goes back to how the human mind, at least some human minds, like scientific minds or whatever, minds of scientists or whatever, uh, they're kind of obsessed with like, oh, hey, here's, here's something rich. And it's especially, richness is good enough, but what will be extra good is if I can bring it down to... Um, a smaller number of compact uh, description rules and the act of creating a world from simple rules and seeing richness emerge is like it's such a dopamine hit <laughs> that so many people across different human endeavors have done it many times and everyone I mean a lot of people including you I mean you can sometimes you can kind of remember what it feels like oh, I've created this richness and I've like created these rules so so just for a moment, imagine a person going through iterations of creating a world and the first iteration, like, that's not very interesting. And the second iteration, like, that's kind of more interesting, but I can, like, make it last a little longer by changing the rule like this. And, oh, suddenly you have something like a game of life which lasts for a long time and you can do other stuff. And so this brings me back to the idea of uh, the thing that I talked about with the Matrix. Was the first version was kind of dull. The second version was interesting. And in some... Uh, in Hindu traditions, I think in some other traditions as well, there is this idea of a cycles of creation and destruction of this world that we inhabit. In, in Hinduism, there definitely is the idea of like different gods associated with creation, sustenance, and destruction, and the fact that this is a necessary cycle and iterations of this need to keep happening.
So I don't need to, I don't want to make any statement about it. I'm just like kind of putting it out there that uh, not only is it an idea that we can think, think about in terms of uh, creations that, you know, things that we create, but it has also been a pervasive idea in how people have understood the history and future of this universe. Uh, so I guess that we live in. With, with, with ideas like that, yeah. Um, it makes me want to draw one of two conclusions that mm. either be, yeah. because there seems to be this convergence of ideas that either it's a reflection of something more fundamental yeah. about the world yeah. or it's a reflection of something fundamental about our minds, uh, our, our particular or maybe species. Both. Or maybe both, right? Or maybe, yeah. as we will see later, that it may not be a coincidence that the two kind of reflect each other's complexity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so, you know The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams? Vaguely. There was a quote there that I remember recently in the context of thinking about this particular idea. So, the quote was, by the way, if you create a new blank, not, okay, a new, I guess a new example document in ShareLatic, which is an online like a platform for creating collab collaborative latex like math documents um it's it's kind of empty except for a couple of lines of just garbage text and there's a picture of the milky way and underneath is a quote that says it's a quote from the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy and it said says there is a theory which states that if ever anyone discovers exactly what the universe is for and why it is here it will instantly disappear and be replaced by something even more bizarre and inexplicable. <laughs> there is another theory which states that this has already happened. <laughs> so later on, we will, in this conversation, we might speculate a little bit about what is the purpose. If, if this is a game and if it, there are iterations of it, what is the ultimate purpose? Actually, this kind of brings us pretty close to Nietzsche's ideas of eternal recurrence. Okay. But we don't need to talk about it too much because I don't know too much about it. But it's kind of connected to what if history kept repeating, then what would be the point of everything? Mm -hmm. And I guess if you hypothesize that a point is for people or inhabitants or players of the game to ultimately understand what this is all about, then the Hitchhiker's Code kind of makes it, okay, you cracked this game. Let's let's see see what you do with the next one. and. Well, okay, so so I don't know the, the this idea of cycles of of, yeah. of repetition. I mean, you know, I don't I don't see how it's that indistinguishable from pattern recognition, right? Like mm-hmm. like patterns and cycles are are yeah not that different. Yeah. I I don't know. I'm just like I'm so I'm so hugely skeptical of um, how far we can take our understanding with our own apparatus. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Because it's like it's like maybe that's the best we can do yeah, is, yeah. is recognize patterns when when you know fundamentally like like and 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 for sh- sure for like like systems where human inter- interaction is is uh supreme mm-hmm. that will begin to reflect in our actions because we're only capable of conceiving a world made of patterns. Yeah. But I think on a larger scale it could be total totally possible that the only amount of consistency we see in the world is entirely self-perpetuated yeah, and yeah. fundamentally it's just it's just yeah. chance it's just yeah, random yeah, right yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway I mean, that's... humans do have a tendency to only remember and obsess about phenomena in which they can find pattern and right. kind of selectively ignore or stay in a state of denial about the things that we have seen this in science for mm-hmm. example people at some point 
thought they, they said something about oh physics is going to be over by the end of the century but then there were things like nonlinear dynamics where even though you know the governing rules it doesn't help you one bit to predict what mm-hmm. your future is and so in many ways we're kind of obsessed with what our knowledge already can encapsulate and categorize and in many ways we have irrational biases towards you know like not wanting to deal with things that we we, we don't really understand um and so i feel like i mean i kind of agree with you i don't think that the universe can be boiled down to like one pattern although that is kind of that is kind of really the goal of physics they want to get to one equation from which everything mm-hmm. sprang well and so i i'm i'm curious yeah. then what because to me it would it would seem that like there is there is a, a um yeah. a significant point of divergence um depending on on whether on on your interpretation of like the most fundamental building blocks of the universe yeah right because like if, if if there is an underlying pattern yeah how can it be made with probabilistic you know fundamental parts like oh right like like i i don't i've well why not why not? Yeah, well, if, if it is purely random, well, we don't need to get into too much detail about this, mm-hmm. but if the uncertainty that arises in quantum mechanics is unstructured uncertainty, meaning it's just pure randomness, uh, then the minimum description length of it is zero. Yeah. Okay. There is really no pattern there to be described, mm-hmm. so it's very compact. Mm-hmm. Like, every time you do an experiment, it's going to be random. <laughs> what do you mean by random? What, what kind of... There's only one kind of random. Well, okay, I'm I'm curious about that though because like okay, I was I'm, I'm trying to like write some stuff on the statistics unit and yeah. and there's the idea of the random variable, but the random variable is just not deterministic. It it can be random, um, in the sense that it is drawn from any kind of distribution, not necessarily a uniform yeah. distribution, but yeah. sometimes, yeah, 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 Gaussian, sometimes whatever. I don't know, right? So yeah. so like, there there are there are like maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but there are different kinds of randomness or different degrees of randomness. yeah but the, the 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 random distribution it comes from is not a fundamental difference between deterministic and randomness because you can always map any probability distribution to a uniform distribution and you can say that if you just draw things from a uniform distribution but then you take a function of those they can follow any distribution you want <laughs> so mm-hmm. that's not really i mean although it kind of feels like it's not purely random then but it can be mapped to something that's purely random. So you can think of it as being a combination of randomness and a function that takes that pure randomness and maps it into something where the probabilities are skewed. Mm-hmm. But in some sense, it's still, once you get, once you account for that deterministic operation that distorts the value of that variable, what remains is still kind of Just pure, purely random. Yeah. Um, but okay, so, so the, that, that, that's a different... Um, so what I was trying to say there is that, um, okay, so we were kind of talking about, um, by the way, this idea of like uncertainty and stuff will come, uh, will arise later because at some point we want to talk about free will mm-hmm. or apparent free will in this game that we are playing. Uh, but anyway, we were talking about this idea of creation and destruction and iterations um, of, of the universe. And so... By the way, one thing that I want to say is that I'm talking about a lot of ideas that are completely unfounded, like intellectually or scientifically, and I'm not even making any effort to to provide any logical foundation for them. 
and my objective is not to get you to not to convince you to believe that the hindu notion of creation and destruction is true or whatever a large part i mean i must okay so this is the time for one of the disclaimers is what is my objective uh, is it just to sit around i mean on this podcast episode just to sit around and ramble about stuff no i mean they i have some hidden agendas okay one of the one of the agendas will become very clear at the end but another agenda is to kind of advocate for the notion that we are not as knowledgeable as as it seems that the um the, the, the degree of absolute certainty or relatively strong certainty with which we go around um what the the relatively strong certainty with which we regard our knowledge of reality or what the nature of the universe is like i would my agenda is here to question that a little bit so when i when i introduce notions like oh is this world a simulation or what is death ultimately my objective is to not answer the question but to simply say that the rigidity with which most of us go around believing that certain things are true versus not or like believing in for example the material origin of the universe or the fact that there are there is an objective world out there and that like people cease to be when they die things like this that i myself was like convinced that the scientific account is true i've slowly come to realize that really the honest answer to many of these questions is i don't know mm-hmm. and it's kind of dishonest to take the i don't know and make that into we shouldn't talk about it or that because we don't know the best guess scientific guess some 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 people came up with the fact that oh i don't know what happens after death is equivalent to nothing happens after death mm-hmm. okay um i mean in some ways i mean there's evidence to support that okay so okay i don't want to get into that but what i'm saying is that one of my hidden agendas is to introduce some level of destabilization in the world of relatively you know certain concepts that we have um and you'll notice that i raise no questions or doubts about um i mean th- this does not mean that anything that science tells us is wrong it's to notice what science hasn't told us mm-hmm. you know and i think a lot of scientists often forget that there are things that they believe or go around having a solid strong notion of that science has never told them and they and 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 to say that science has told us is deeply unscientific mm-hmm. and our final allegiance is to truth to the whole truth um and this culture of science to propagate itself beyond what it has data for is not scientific mm-hmm. even if you keep using the word scientific attitude or scientific whatever it's a cultural thing it's not really yeah. science so so that's kind of like an agenda so sometimes when i introduce ideas like oh iterations and the hindu whatever I'm not saying that any of this is true. I'm saying we don't yeah, know. Yeah. You know, so that's why I like keep bombarding you with like hypothetical questions uh which we don't really know the answer for. Okay, so we talked about like the cycles of creation and destruction. So thinking about it that way makes us feel like okay, so you create a simulation and you kind of see it through until the end and then you notice okay, this wasn't very interesting or this was interesting. Let's have another go at it and then you restart the simulation. So that says something about the time scale of each iteration. So the the time scale of each iteration is like whatever from big bang to the big crunch or whatever from the beginning to the end. But there is one thing to note here is that 
um, um, the okay I kind of wrote it down okay but okay so every time that you go through iterations of the simulation you might argue that something is being modified or tweaked um, but the thing to notice here is that since we might be embedded in a simulation or imagine a simulation where where you're tweaking it the simulation could be modified on time scales is being modified if it is being modified if it is being iterated through it is being done so on time scales that are external to the simulation itself and therefore the time scales of the modification of the simulation could be incomprehensible to beings that are inside the simulation mm -hmm. so um, for example like the Rick and Morty case you could run through simulations of that game or different iterations of the game every five minutes but inside the game it feels like thousands of years or whatever so that's one way that it could happen or imagine that you are the creator of a simulation and you suddenly realize oh I need to tweak this little bit maybe all the laws are correct but I want the story to be slightly different so you could just like interrupt that simulation just pause it nothing changes there but then you go in and change something about a little bit about the story mm -hmm. okay like imagine you go in and change some facts you ch change the location of a building and put something else there and you change some beliefs in some of the participants minds of, of, of the players or whatever that you've created and but before you start the simulation again you notice that if this suddenly notices this discontinuity that things will be joined like people like what what the fuck just happened where did this building disappear so you need to at least have some sufficient statistics going back through the in the past into the past of the memory is of these players that makes this new world compatible with what they're seeing so for example in the matrix there was this idea uh, that well there was this scene where they talk about deja vu so the so neo trinity and these people they're kind of trapped in the matrix and they need to get back into the real world and cypher one of their teammates has colluded with the agents in order to trap them in that world and ultimately this is how they get morpheus and so what they do is there was supposed to be this room in an apartment where there would be this telephone which you know they, they, there's a the telephone rings they hold it up to to their ears and this is what they use to transport themselves through the whatever through the telephone back into the real world and once they reach this room they find that there is no entry to the room that they wanted it's because the code of the matrix had been changed because they knew those, these people would try to exit through here but before this happens morpheus and trinity and all these people they're walking up a stairwell of a building and neo looks at looks somewhere and he says deja vu and everyone says well what do you mean he says well i saw a black cat walk past the hallway i can remember the 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 quotes almost like word by word i i watched this movie like more than 25 times by the way when i was in high school i watched a, i saw a black cat walk past the hallway and then another cat that looks just like it and then trinity or someone else says well how, how much like it was it the same cat and Neo says, oh, I don't really know. It might have been the same cat. Well, oh, why? And they said, well, okay, deja vu is, it's a way, uh, it's kind of a signal. What Sometimes when they come in and change the code, they kind of replay the last few seconds of it in order for there to be overlap or whatever. And deja vu is when some people notice that this like has happened before. So it might be an indication that something about the matrix has changed and it had changed in their case. So there's an idea that, I mean, you can just, if you just want to stitch, like if you want to change the world, you just stitch 
it with like the last couple uh, seconds of the world and you don't bother creating a whole new world from beginning you just say okay this is going to be good enough uh, but it's kind of like it's kind of sloppy and there's also this philosophical idea i don't know if you've heard of it that we kind of believe that okay you and i we have had these histories i was born like 29 years back and all of these things happened to me and the universe was created like billions of years ago so there's like this whole time course and history of the universe and there's the future but all of these are facts inside my mind how can we tell that we didn't just come into being two seconds back with all of these memories already in place mm -hmm. you know so if you are a player in a simulation and let's imagine for a moment that there are no other players that everything else is fake it's all a game you're the only player i could just come in pause time and change everything about the game and just implant new memories to make you feel like you just pick up and carry on but but it's really just a whole new game so there are many different ways in which iterations could happen it doesn't necessarily even have to be the case that you start from the beginning go all the way until the end because you're kind of helplessly immersed in a simulation where anything can be projected to you as real the creator doesn't need to even bother letting an iteration run until they modify. They just come in, pause, make changes, and just make you believe that this new version was the version all along. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and I guess if you're if you are simulating a reality, um, there's <laughs> yeah there's there's no reason say say you know it's all bits right there's yeah. there's no reason to even um, necessarily have a paradigm where you have time steps right it's just another dimension yeah so yeah. you can just go into yeah. an arbitrary chunk of that dimension yeah and 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 you, you like you like mm. um several people have mentioned um vonnegut slaughterhouse five to me in, in the past few days and i haven't read it yet have you read it no um there's supposed to be like fifth dimensional beings in it yeah. um who can conceive of time as a single linear dimension yeah. um uh, simultaneously they can just see all mm. of it and so like maybe no reason for that to not be the case in these simulations as well yeah yeah um, yeah i don't know uh, okay so so we have this idea of, of immediate modification because mm. why not um yeah. so all i'm saying is, is this is another way for me to just say okay this this is one more thing that we can't make any conclusions about mm -hmm. we believe in this so-called objective history of the universe and we really believe that it started billions of years ago and whatever and uh, i mean i might start to sound a little crazy but i think the honest answer is we don't really know mm -hmm. we don't really know the answer to questions like this and everyone has a shared notion that this is how all the universe is but there's i mean to be very honest there's no way for us to tell if we have been if we haven't simply been duped to, right to believe this right because yeah. like all we have is evidence pointing to and yeah. and and that that is yeah maybe helpful and useful but like you said like yeah, yeah. it's not the same thing as as well i mean what is yeah, direct yeah. knowledge but yeah yeah i'm not one of those people that says oh therefore we should stop all scientific investigation because if nothing else science is a good way for figuring out a subset of the rules of the game that we are immersed in mm -hmm. but i do want to be kind of firm and say that it is important sometimes for especially scientists who call themselves rational beings to be very honest about the limits of, the, of their knowledge mm -hmm. and they used all sorts of irrational um, tactics to shut down conversations where which exposes the limits of their knowledge mm -hmm. and i find this kind of reaction for example also when i talk to people about 
oh, I want to study consciousness. Sometimes the reaction, I guess, of like a sort of a smirk, like you want to, that's not even, a, you know, mm-hmm. what do you mean? Yeah. Like, what, 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 so you are admitting that there are things that you can't, isn't that something worth finding out? Why is that science has to end there? And if it does science, if, if a scientific investigation does end there and consciousness has got its foot in the door, isn't it worthwhile to sit down and see that transition from where, from the scientific dominion to this other dominion and see is really consciousness the boundary between science and we don't know or is the boundary elsewhere and we have been duping ourselves into thinking that we have scientific knowledge about other stuff that we really don't. So I think these are worthwhile questions to to pursue. This is why I'm spending a lot of this episode just talking about things and trying to expose really the limits um, of our knowledge and starting from the idea of a simulation just kind of felt uh, like a good starting point mm-hmm. um, because it's I think the the entry is kind of like people kind of get it like people kind of intuitively know that these are not questions that we can uh, really answer so so going off of that now I feel like I want to kind of describe or talk about the whole NDFOR or human enterprise of science so we kind of use science as um, a very solidly established foundation um, for obtaining and establishing what we call knowledge or truth with a capital T. Uh, but, you know, this great and noble human enterprise, if this is really some sort of a simulation that we are immersed in, this great and noble human enterprise that supposedly gets us closer to the capital T truth could be part of the ultimately purposeless entertainment of the game that is really not getting us any closer to any absolute truth or whatever fabricated truth there is for us to figure out in this game, all as part of an ultimately purposeless entertainment. Um, um, so, um, so for example, if you imagine creating a world in which there are little inhabitants, like little people walking around, and sometimes there is a special species which asks questions about the nature of the reality that they're... Uh, that they're immersed in we're like that's kind of that's interesting i want to have these inhabitants and let's see what what they can figure out and they're intellectual and they employ these methods and whatever at any point you can go in and let them follow the thread of their intellectual logic whichever way you want because you are free to shape how they reason and you are free to shape how the universe responds to their investigations so at any point, you can go back and say, okay, these guys are kind of getting close to figuring out that it's all a simulation. I'm just going to go back and change the whole history and physical laws of this universe such that uh, the uh, human quest for meaning, or not human, but whatever these inhabitants are in the simulation, their quest for meaning and understanding and knowledge is more long drawn out and more interesting. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the fact, so all I'm trying to find, say is that we have this sort of... Um, a pride and confidence and superior a feeling of superiority that we get from science that we are fucking cracking this shit Mm -hmm. we are figuring out what the universe is about and the the ultimate source of like intellectual superiority and knowledge and understanding and meaning in this universe has come from our brains and our scientific method and there's nothing above us and what we are finding out is the capital T truth but if you sort of give some room to the simulation idea, you'll notice that there's nothing in this that's beyond the 
the, the the control of a creator to manage like if someone has created this whole world they can decide to steer or whatever mm-hmm. they can decide how participants in this will figure out scientific knowledge and it's all it's all for shits and giggles like mm-hmm. there's no you know so um once again i'm not advocating that we should stop doing science but there's a certain culture um associated with being scientists that does not necessarily derive itself from how science works so, so this feeling of like this is the absolute truth that we are discovering and and because we have found out that the universe is whatever years old that that is the absolute you know mm-hmm. so something something that popped into my mind um was was whether or not mm-hmm. it is even plausible that inside a simulation mm-hmm. or a simulated world you'd be able to construct the um the the laws fundamental to the world itself like you that yeah. you'd be able to describe it but i mean we've we've talked about chaotic systems and complexity yeah. where where so i'm curious does it seem plausible to you to be yeah. within a system yeah. and still be capable of describing the system completely i think um the honest scientific answer the state of the art scientific answer ought to be we don't know mm-hmm. um but the hope is at least this is what motivates a lot of physicists who are in the business of really fundamental sciences. The hope is that within this system, we will be able to find uh, sufficient description or generative laws that describe everything. I guess I guess I so. have deep suspicions about it, but like scientists of high calibers have talked about it. This is not something that's unheard of. Feynman talked about it. He said like if if we keep tracing back the rules and laws of causality is there a stopping point that we'll, we will reach or is reality like an onion with endless layers that we just keep like mm-hmm. there's also this godel's incompleteness thing where like right. I mean, will we be able to find the reasons for the birth everything to do with the understanding this universe just within this universe or not and i don't see any guarantees why that should be so mm-hmm. well so i guess like maybe um an example of this would be like do you think it's possible to to within the game of life mm-hmm. um construct a game of life that is isomorphic to to the the, the original layer because you said you can like like yeah hypothetically you can have a um, a turing machine constructed within the game of life yeah so it can kind you, of depends on what you mean by isomorphic like functionally equivalent you know like like could you could you yeah i think you can mm-hmm. because you can build a digital calculator uh in the game of life so the moment you have a general purpose computer within the game of life from that point on you can, you can just use that computer to have its own programming language in which the same rules as game of life uh, are mm-hmm. played but the inhabitants of that game of life might not recognize that to the same as their world right right yeah okay that's super yeah so that's, that's, that's something i was wondering it's like yeah what would it yeah. um hmm. because okay. the rules of the game of life are observable and understandable from a higher you know you can say oh this is a game it's a two incomplete game but to the inhabitants they, they don't know if you know so, um, yeah, I think to the inhabitants of the game of life, it might not be a solvable problem to describe the, the entire totality of the nature of their mm-hmm. world. I'm not entirely sure. Well, I wonder, like, let's say hypothetically, you know, yeah. monkeys at a typewriter, they, they, they futz around and, and eventually do arrive at within the game of life, a, an exact replica of the game of life, yeah. would they even know it if they saw it? Yeah, yeah. No <laughs> because it will necessarily have a different physical form than the original game of life because it will be running 
on this general purpose computer that is created out of gliders and whatever mm-hmm. and I mean what do we even mean by intelligent beings in game of life? I know what yeah. is their intelligence <laughs> how do they understand and even if there are so called intelligent beings in game of life arguably their intelligence is some limited uh capacity to understand patterns about the rest of the world mm-hmm. so for them to understand within quotes that the game of life that they have created is just a you know nested version of their world it has to do with the limitations of what they can or cannot process as information and this to me feels like they're great... trapped in their own game of life yeah right? well and this this to me feels like a great analogy to what you're trying to get at with this notion yeah. of like how much science still cannot yeah, yeah, explain yeah. is it's like that of course seems laughable, right? That you, you run the computer, the, you run Golly, and it's like, oh, yeah, blah, blah, yeah. Blah, blah. now they're yeah. sentient. Like, no, of course not. They don't really get it the way we do. Yeah. Just like hypothetically, we would never be able to get it the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. One level up. Yeah. So the equivalent, the analogy of science for these um, supposedly kind of intelligent beings within Game of Life would be they kind of start with, okay, so there is some consciousness of this, whatever. Otherwise, they wouldn't be asking these questions, I guess. Like, oh, what's going on? We are, we are trapped in this thing. There are some cells that grow and then they die. There are these gliders that come. And in the beginning, they start with some mythologies of what it is. Oh, they're like these gods or whatever, blah, whatever, you know. And then they're like, no, you know, there are some patterns in this. You know, every time this glider comes to visit, uh, 30 generations later, there's something else that... And then they might come up with their own version of science but with using that they might still only be able to explain a subset of the phenomena in the world mm-hmm. but not uh, themselves or uh, the, i mean so they might find that this thing that they call science a way of asking questions that are like reproducible falsifiable, whatever does explain some of the patterns and it's understandable because the game of life is not um, it does follow some rules and some of these patterns could be uh, interpreted using uh, certain methods but it doesn't mean that everything will be explained for example they'll never be able to understand themselves mm-hmm. because the product i mean it's the 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 answers to their investigative questions are a product of their intelligence and that intelligence is itself kind of limited it's on the same level of complexity as the complexity of the world so um you're kind of reaching well Whatever. I mean, we have kind of talked about yeah. this before. Well, and so yeah. I guess what it makes me wonder, and this this goes back to what you were saying about how yeah. um, some people are dismissive of consciousness because they're like, that's that's past the line where scientific reasoning can can take us anywhere meaningful. Yeah. But but you know, in in that is sort of the assumption that that there there's a discrete boundary between mm-hmm. what is scientific and what is not scientific, and that's I think exactly what you were questioning, right? Yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What if it's yeah. What if it's a very nebulous barrier? Yeah, and what yeah, if there's yeah, some... yeah. So you can't simply, what I'm saying is that you can't simply rest easy uh, saying, okay, the things that I deal with in my PhD and the things that other people deal with are clearly in the domain of science. Because you haven't, you don't really know what the boundary is. And we'll come to this a little later, but maybe I'll talk about this in a different podcast. But consciousness is a problem that I keep bringing up not just as a random example, but I think it's a very crucial example that has kind of got its foot in the door of science. And if How we, so? Okay, so, so, I mean, it's something that in my mind is still definitely outside the realm of uh, hard science. And it's not just a random problem that's just an example of something that's outside hard science because it deals with this very entity that has built the rest of the cathedral of science 
uh, a complete lack of knowledge regarding what this entity is threatens to topple that very cathedral. Like, if you don't fucking know who you are, how can you trust everything that you believe to be true? Hmm. So in that sense, it kind of threatens to topple everything. If in the future, this question of consciousness somehow leads us to answers that we don't like, like, oh, shit, uh, the, there is nothing. Uh, I mean, this really, for example, let's just find out that, oh, this is a simulation. There would be no reason to, like, believe absolutely in the in whatever um, science tells us. Because uh, it's provisional. It's, yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, or what if tomorrow you, you find out that uh, you wake up from this game that you were immersed in and um, the, the laws and rules of the real universe are all different. Um, then we're like, oh, okay, so I guess that was the physics of that world, but that's not anything absolute. And the physics of this world is all, all very different. And in fact, those laws are kind of uh, nonsensical laws because they would never be able to be true in a real world. You know, in the same way that we have dragons and whatever, my roommate George used to be like this caveman who would ride on top of uh, pterodactyl in this like made up game. Mm -hmm. And in these made up games, you can have spells and whatever. So to be able to, ha to, to, to derive these laws and have absolute unwavering faith in these laws of science and then to wake up from a simulation like, oh, none of this could actually be possible. The only reason all of that nonsense was possible was because it was running on a simulation. Mm -hmm. And the ideas in a simulation don't have to conform to the actual laws of physics because it's just like things. It's just like bits, information. It never really violated the true laws of physics, but they were also not the true laws of physics that we discovered. So in that sense, I, I hope I'm being able to give you some ideas of why the consciousness question is not just an arbitrary question. Depending on whether or not we can ever answer the question of consciousness, is it like the hard or soft problem of consciousness, is a different thing. But depending on the answer, it could turn out that a lot of the answers to other questions were wrong. Mm -hmm. Because we had this materialistic viewpoint and the materialistic viewpoint is something that ultimately is an inference of sentient beings that are conscious that don't know what their consciousness is about. Okay, so that was just sort of, uh, I guess I was just trying in general to tell you how uh, this idea of the world being a simulation is kind of related to reviewing how solidly or confidently we feel about other scientific inferences. And I was talking about how you can imagine um, inhabitants in a made-up world that you created constantly trying to figure out what the nature of this reality is. Humans have asked themselves this question time and again. By the way, this is a question only humans ask themselves. Other species don't. And if you notice, one of the annoying things, so-called annoying things, that atheists find about religion is that it puts humans in a special position as opposed to other species. And I think there might actually, at the end of this conversation, you might actually find that there might be some sound reasons for doing that. If you imagine creating a simulation in which there is one particular species that you kind of designed to ask questions about the nature of the simulation, that they're, they're doing something that from that point of view is fundamentally different from anything else. Mm. Uh, in some sense, I think it's kind of fundamentally different. Um, but anyway, we, we can get to that later. I was just kind of talking about how, you know, you can go back and repeatedly change the rules of the game and repeatedly override their memories to make the human quest for understanding or knowledge or whatever uh, last as long as you want or be as interesting um, as you want. And so the next question is if... Oh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Well, okay, so, so, so I mean... Yeah, the, the, the notion of human exceptionalism is pretty debated and fraught um, with, like, 
you know cultural theological and political implications but but i think i think it i don't know from from what i can remember of my childhood yeah you know being human yeah was repeatedly impressed upon me by other humans like i don't i don't i i think i think it's 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 difficult to disambiguate what um uh, what is true for a single human being as opposed to what is an epiphenomena of being a member of the human species, yeah, yeah. If, if that makes sense. So much, really, of being human has to do with the social yeah, epiphenomena. Yeah, like, like, like I think yeah. as, as constituent units, like, science wouldn't exist if there were just one person at a time, right? Like, like because we never would have bothered to come up with a language. We never would have, like, it wouldn't have even, like, like say, but like... I think individual humans can still be inspired to, like, questions about... Oh, that sure. they may not be able to articulate. Mm-hmm. Well, but they, we can do it so much better when there are other people. But, right, but there, there wouldn't... Like, you, yeah, say, say you're, like, you know, one person at a time on the planet. Yeah. Um, and, and as soon as you die, the next person is, is born. Yeah, um, yeah we, we, we would have still the same innate problem-solving skills and the same yeah. drives to, like, you know, um, eat and, you know, maybe not reproduce because it's a weird example and there's no one to, like, yeah, fuck yeah. with, but uh so but but what you can say fuck on my podcast cool what would be totally lacking is is any sort of conceptual paradigm about um other humans and how to convey information or even what information is to them right so so like i don't know i'm 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 skeptical that we even have a tendency towards it towards the idea that we are exceptional species um i think instead that is some i I think it could just easily just as easily be explained as just some sort of weird um uh um uh extrapolation of of xenophobic tendencies right like you know the way like you would you would you would need that to distinguish between other tribes you just expand that to all of us but you do admit that as a species or as a society or community we are capable of phenomena or things that uh, that are richer, that are kind of richer and worthy of looking at in in, in excess of just what a human can do alone. Mm-hmm. And when I talk about this human exceptionalism here, especially in the context of like raising questions about the nature of reality, I incorporate the the social aspect. For me, mm-hmm. it's not simply about one human or whatever. Right. In whatever capacity they ask that question, whether together or or individually. I just find that as from the point of view of a creator who's trying to create a world where they want there to be inhabitants who ask interesting questions, it really is kind of, it's not just an arbitrary thing. It is, it's kind of like a fundamental difference between uh, what's going on there and what's happening in the rest of the sort of background. I guess I just wonder though, like, like if, if, um, if you could say, cause like, I mean, you brought up the Lorenz equation earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still a very simple set of equations yeah um and and i can imagine really closely related ones or even ones with just slightly tweaked parameters yeah that would behave more simply yeah right so so i think i think it i don't think we can safely exclude an analogous argument to other species right like it could just be that like yeah. our our there might be a continuity between there yeah i think yeah. there's a continu- continuity that yeah. you know may or may not have been tweaked yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah yeah but this way of looking at it I mean, it all kind of depends on, from the creator's point of view, what's important. Is it interesting to the creator that a certain subset of the inhabitants ask questions about this reality that they're immersed in? If it is important, then from that point of view, even if there's a continuity between the human species and the other species, it still kind of puts them at their peak. I mean, there's ultimately no great sense of, like, 
uh, pride to be derived from because everything is kind of arbitrary. So I was <laughs> like, I was going to go on to the topic of, okay, so if th- this really is such a world where something like this is happening, where like uh, these there are these inhabitants which ask questions about the nature of reality and uh, I mean, and they keep asking these questions and then there are iterations maybe to keep making this world more and more interesting and the human quest more and more interesting. What is the ultimate purpose of it all? Of it all? And I think the honest answer is for, I mean, to, I mean, to the limit of my knowledge, I, there is no purpose. <laughs> There's no point. Absolutely. No purpose. But in general, once you look deeply at life, you will notice that the fiction of purpose falls away in many places that you look. Mm-hmm. Um, Can you give an example of that? And what is the purpose of your life? Well, let's forget <laughs> that we are having this conversation. Just in general, mm-hmm. I asked you, what is the purpose of your life? A lot of people at various ages, various times in their life would have an answer to that. But for I, me personally, that question has, you know, monotonically reduced mm-hmm. in what it means. Like, I don't think there is any purpose well, and it, life in the I mean, sense. I think it's interesting too to to, to consider like yeah. you know I don't I don't think there are many people out there who have um, maintained in their mind a singular pur- pur- purpose yeah. their whole like you know yeah. um, waking lucid lifetime yeah. there you know very few people are like that so so naturally it can take on a series of things yeah. and it's <laughs> to me it's immediately problematic yeah. if that can happen and there's no um, obvious way of knowing if you pick the right one also yeah. no way of 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 this is if there is a right one right right yeah. so like if the there idea is a right, one. a right purpose is also i feel like it's just a human constructed it's it's, it's i mean to me it sounds like a nonsense statement yeah, 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 yeah it's yeah, like because yeah. how would you know yeah yeah but now if you think about it when humans go about building their own games like a nintendo game or whatever they clearly know from the outset that there's no real purpose it's just entertainment we have got idle time but even though they know that it's ultimately all empty, they will have something like the definition of a score at the corner of the uh, screen. And although they know that other humans have devised this game and there is no ultimate purpose, we still are entertained playing this game or whatever, this first-person shooter, and there's some explicit or implicit value or currency or whatever goal. And this is something kind of important to keep in mind as we go later into the like the more religious slash philosophical hindu aspect of the metaphysics of the world is that just because we know that ultimately it's all empty doesn't mean that we don't manage to entertain ourselves with it humans are actually pretty good this is another way in which not not discontinuously maybe continuously but there is a difference between humans and other species in the sense that we willfully create bullshit empty fictions and we still derive joy from entering them you know um that's what a lot of society is about careers are about movies are about you know games whatever yeah um i mean i mean we kind of want to believe our fictions as solidly as possible because it makes it more engaging right right but uh, i mean that's also like uh, this made up phenomenon Mm -hmm. so that's kind of like i just wanted to say that you can't simply like rule that, oh, okay, this is all a fiction. There is no purpose. We create purpose out of nothing. And then we find entertainment from it. So it's a way of deliberately deluding ourselves into playing certain games. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, um, um, ba, 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 ba. okay. So, yeah, I mean, uh, okay. So, yeah. Okay. So earlier I was talking about how, um, 
you know, we use science as a foundation for what we believe to be absolute capital T truth. Um, but I kind of talked about some points which kind of like, you know, um, like makes me question that that's like really all that there is to truth. And what I wanted to say following that is that, um, I mean, I used to be one of these, you know, very militant atheist, you know, staunch scientists. And nothing about the facts of what I believe about the universe have changed, but I feel like it has room for the same set of facts has room for like different interpretations of what it could be. And the effect, one of the effects that it can have, like different interpretations of what life could be, is in relaxing how I feel about the role of science versus um, the role of religion and how I feel about the idea, the notion of a God. It's not the kind of God that like normally people talk about, but it's still kind of whatever. Anyway, so I, I kind of wanted to say that my experiences have made me sort of more humble regarding the role of um, intellectualism, mm -hmm. uh, the scientific intellectualism and how much it can serve to deliver us truth. Mm -hmm. So it has made me kind of humble. And I will talk about this a little bit more, but you'll notice that if your objective as the creator of the world was to create a, a world that is very rich in its properties, its aspects, its behavior, and the challenges it poses, and the ways in which the answers are not simple, the patterns are not simple, uh, then the creator has done an amazing job, at least to the perception of our minds. Mm -hmm. You know, there is a sort of trickiness and paradoxes kind of everywhere you look, especially as you start thinking about the nature of your own mind and how human minds work. Um, and especially in the way that the human mind relates emotionally and spiritually to the world, there is paradoxes and trickiness everywhere. It's mm -hmm. not easy to hack that game. Um, and there's also such intense, non-trivial richness in every square millimeter of the of the world. So if you do choose to look at it. So, for example, in certain kinds of well, there are people who have said that even in just simple like breathing meditation, where you're simply focusing on just one sensation at the tip of your nostril, if your if your attention becomes sharp enough, that experience becomes almost boundlessly rich. And you realize that there is no such thing as an objective level of richness to a stimulus. The level of richness is um, is an interaction between the thing in itself and how you are relating to it. Uh, it's a product of the interaction between the human mind and the, and the universe. So if you look around and if you pay due attention, you'll notice that there is such an intense uh, richness to every square millimeter of life. Um, that uh, to me now compared to even me like a year before the, no matter where i turn and what kinds of experiences i have whether positive or negative and no matter how dull or boring an evening could be it feels to me like the universe is now teeming with life uh, not necessarily like biological life and it's kind of hard for me to explain but Everywhere I look, it feels everything feels so much more not only alive, but also teeming with a certain kind of sentience or an intelligence that is superior to my own. 
So the normal atheistic scientific view is that this world is just kind of mechanical and dry and we're the only source of intelligence or whatever. And we're like figuring out what is otherwise the mechanical clockwork. It doesn't appear to me to be that way anymore. It seems like otherwise um, inanimate happenings uh, or courses of action or things that are supposed to be just inanimate feel more sentient to me now in the sense that I think I've kind of started feeling like it was designed or steered by a superior intelligence, that this is not simply dry and lifeless. I'm, so, I mean, it's, I'm, I'm saying some very unscientific things, but I'm just saying how I feel. Mm -hmm. And part of it has been the result of, um, you know, doing drugs. Um, but... I don't necessarily doubt the experiences that I have on drugs uh, because we are always having experiences on drugs. It's just a different composition than LSD. I mean, <laughs> right now we are all on drugs. They're just like, you know, the, the normal neurotransmitters. The, the, the drugs you're extremely familiar with. So yeah, it's like... just like drugs that, are, that you're extremely familiar with. So this is a change that has happened. Um, and you might call that a, a shift to like traditional religiosity. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, it doesn't, that doesn't that wouldn't be how it strikes me, yeah. just because I, I I don't know I feel like many people not all but many yeah. people go to religious doctrines hmm. as a way of forming certainty in their relationship to the world. Yeah, almost in the same way um, that that it seems to be like how where it seems to. In, in the same way that your critique of modern science points to this idea that we, that now the, the the monolith of science is used yeah. as a a, um, a a proxy for certainty when yeah. when really what what I think a lot of what you're describing is has been sort of a a, um, a zooming out of perspective that makes room for a lot of I don't know yeah 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 um, yeah interactions yeah. where where you're not you're not you're yeah. not shielding yourself yeah, from those yeah yeah. But what you will notice during this conversation is that some of the statements that I'm making are relaxations of the certainty of knowledge. So going more in the direction of, you know what, I really don't know. But then there are other statements that I will be making, especially starting from this part of the conversation, where I will be making new assertions of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And uh, these, these, these are the new aspects of the... The other part to say that I don't know, it doesn't require, I mean, it's, it's actually rational to say, hey, you know what? I think I overestimated the degree of certainty. And any even really honestly, scientifically minded person who has never done drugs should ideally uh, be convinced by a properly worded uh, argument to say that, yeah, okay. I mean, I might prefer believing that the, the, the world has a materialistic origin, but to be very honest for just a moment, okay, I will admit I don't really know. Okay, these new experiences that are or these new assertions that I will start talking about are no longer of the nature of I don't know, but I feel like I know something new that I didn't know before. And I will not be able to back up most of these using intellectual arguments because I did not derive them from intellectual arguments. But I'll simply describe them um, and I will point to certain historical precedents of these ideas that have existed in different cultures. And I will try to connect it to different ideas 
in the hope that you or some audience member will be interested to go up and read up and like chart their own course. I'm not forcing any idea down their throat. I'm just simply describing things. And if you're interested, you can like go and um, follow the trail of breadcrumbs and see where it leads you. Uh, but I'm not asking you to, you know, suspend um, your uh, well calibrated meters of bullshit or whatever. Um, so this, can, yeah. Can pause for one second. I yeah. Just make sure. Yeah. Okay. I think this will have to have like a, a follow up. A, a different. Yeah, because we are only like halfway. So oh, we really? can like quit today and do like a second part of it. Um, and I think this is actually like a good point to stop would be the end of like describing what I don't know. <laughs> and then the next part could be what I think I know that's new. But there's another point of what, you know, I think that we don't know that I, I didn't talk about yet, um, which is, okay, so once again, it's the question of consciousness. So there's a book on my windowsill that's about consciousness and it's written by a neuroscientist called Christoph Koch. And I haven't read the whole book, but um, he was kind of talking in the beginning chapters about hypothesis um, from like a neuro neuroscience point of view of what consciousness could be and the different hypotheses are about the different structures of the brain like oh is consciousness a product of in the actions of individual neurons or groups of neurons or is it long-range connections between different parts of the brain etc but you notice how even though those different hypotheses may be different the one thing that they have in common is that they're all uh, trying to explain consciousness from a materialistic basis. Like it's something about the property of the brain mm -hmm. that is consciousness. And so here I want to make a point about an illusion of knowledge that we have. Like when we usually go about explaining other things, it might suffice to uh, trace them back to a fundamental materialistic origins that we can find and then maybe we can probe no more. And it might suffice to say, okay, so we'll start with like gluons or, or quarks or whatever, and then everything else we can see follows from there. But when it comes to this idea of consciousness, imagine for a moment that you really are immersed in a simulation. And if you are immersed in a simulation, you actually have no fucking clue what your physical body is like, mm -hmm. okay? In and the real world. In the real world. In the real world, you have no idea what your physical body is like, whether there is even such a thing as a physical body or whatever. So if we imagine that consciousness is something that you derive from the real world, that it is simply been immersed in a simulated world, but it is derived from some mechanism in the real world, we don't really know what that mechanism is because we don't even know what kind of body you have in the real world or what generates that consciousness in this body. But you have been now, now immersed in a simulation world in which you can be, uh, you can be made to perceive anything. You know, so the subject in this simulated world can be made to perceive things like bodies that have legs and whatever. And should they choose, they can cut up another player. I mean, I don't know what other players mean in this game. And we'll come to it later uh, in the second part of the conversation. But you're made to believe that there exists these things called skulls. And inside the skulls, there are these squishy brains. And somehow consciousness is generated by these squishy brains. But it could just be like this you know, just this random thing that's in the simulation that has nothing to do with the real consciousness. Mm. And uh, so here is another moment to notice that, you know, you know, there is no reason to suppose that the consciousness that you experience is given rise to by this thing called brain that you experience in the game. Mm. 
mm-hmm. you can't bridge you can't really bridge that like you know, i don't see how you can it's just one of it's it's just another one of many things that you're experiencing in the game to therefore say that to 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 pick one of these many things and say this is what gives rise to my consciousness but i don't know how you go about like making a statement like that well so how but then i guess my questions would would mm. tend towards how how it is that there does seem to be a pretty well defined relationship like um between certain areas of the brain and yeah. certain capacities like you look at um stroke victims you look at yeah um people with certain like like the the yeah. science is burgeoning but it but it, it it's nonetheless yeah. it seems to point to some non-trivial relationship between sure and those non-trivial relationships could be coded into the simulation rules of the game mm-hmm. such that um you, you could just say that any time so we'll come to this idea later but in the in the hindu in one of the hindu doctrines the idea of maya or illusion is that which serves to distract you mm-hmm. or distract you from the path of truth so if you are like if you are a creator who kind of want to kind of wants to fuck with the the beings you could just say every time you feel this i'm going to make the brains do this thing mm-hmm. and so they're going to be you know they're going to be fooled into thinking is this brain that's doing this thing um so there's no way to rule out i mean if if you are talking about the simulation theory or the simulation hypothesis uh it completely accounts for the fact that certain things could be happening in the brain which is one of the many contents of the things that you experience but it may not ultimately be the generator of your mm-hmm. consciousness um okay so there's that thing the other part is that um all these stroke victims that you talk about or for example if you drive an axe through someone's head they appear to die but then we don't really know if they exist <laughs> like if we don't know if other people exist in the first place you know <laughs> so uh, all i'm trying to say is that please be be careful and like just review what is our inference versus what is raw data mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah i like that well so i was i was going to ask then um why so so if i am making this simulation yeah. um so I, real quickly i just want to say so i guess the summary of that is nothing of this that all of the science and all of the so-called evidence that we have um that points towards the brain as being the generative consciousness nothing of this is beyond the power of a malevolent creator to simulate in a simulation right right right, right. yeah and i don't i don't disagree with that but i i feel like you could still derive something from arguments um about why why it would be that um i mean essentially like take occam's razor approach and and say like you know everything else about um the simulation seems to um rely on on fairly simple laws that govern it right so so up up into the motion and 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 even even like you know more more complicated but not quite as complicated um as our brain or as our consciousness is uh phenomena why then would wouldn't it be cooler if i were the simulator um to be able to um generate consciousness mm. derived from those same principles it would it would be cleaner it would be more concise if it is possible i guess mm-hmm. it's just that we know so little about even the nature of consciousness that i hesitate to i guess i just have this hunch i f- i feel like it's not something that could be explained 
using a reductionist materialistic approach. Mm -hmm. I just have this hunch that the same things that explain other kinds of complex phenomena like a storm or whatever, starting from first principles like particles and motion, would be able to explain consciousness. I guess it would be cool as a creator if you could start with uh, only a couple of building blocks and give rise to both an apparently material world and consciousness that perceives it. But I wouldn't venture to make any guesses about how that is. All. So this is part of uh, the long list of things that I'm saying I don't know about. Mm -hmm. I'm, not advocating, I, I'm not advancing any alternative theory. I'm just saying that if you once admit that this could be a simulated world, then you no longer can use what's happening in the brain as evidence that this is what generates consciousness. You just say, hey, that's an inference at best. Mm -hmm. right. um, or it could even just be something that is nice to have there because it, it um, assuages some curiosities about yeah. where consciousness also, comes Also, I from. mean, if you really think about it, what does it even mean to say that the brain generates consciousness? What is the brain? <laughs> The brain is a subset of the conscious of, of our conscious experiences, like things like on an MRI machine or like in a dead person's whatever. You take the skull off and you see this thing, you feel it. So it's a subset of our own conscious experience. Like there are so many things that we're experiencing. We're experiencing the breeze or whatever, emotions, other people, mm -hmm. thoughts. And then we sometimes experience um, different facets of what we call a brain. Okay. So the first thing is all evidence and experience of brains are a subset of what we call conscious experience. Mm -hmm. Okay, and what we are saying is that when we say brains cause consciousness, this is what we are saying. We are saying that all of the different representations of this thing that we call the brain, they're all really representations of one thing, this concept called the brain. This is true for, of, of, of how we define any object really, we, we kind of say, there's Benam, Benam's voice, Benam's whatever. These all belong to something called Benam. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is categorization. You categorize all of these different sensory raw experiences into, you're saying that we repackage them as being manifestations of an idea called the brain that exists out there in the real world. And then anytime that we experience it, what is really happening is that sensory stimulus about the brain, either the light that is reflected from it or the light that shows up on a screen when you're looking at blood flow in the brain through an fMRI machine. All of these things are stimuli from this object from the brain that comes and hits our retina, whatever, and interacts with our own brain and then forms this notion of this thing called the brain that we can supposedly objectively investigate in much the same way that we investigate other things like a machine or an engine or whatever. And then we say that this thing, this object, that all of this um sensory stimuli is um is 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 an imprint of is the thing that generates the consciousness within which we see everything that is really the unpacked not very well unpacked but i kind of but that is really the unpacked version of saying the brain generates consciousness mm -hmm. and there are so many levels of inference in in joining those dots that um at best, I think in all intellectual honesty, what you can say is if you take away all of the inferences, what is the raw data that we have? The raw data is that there appear to be other people who are like me and 
we have noticed that some of these people when they feel certain things it's correlated with noticing certain changes in the different imprints of the the brain mm -hmm. um so for example if you put them in an mri machine and you notice look at what is supposedly the blood flow in the brain sometimes certain patterns of blood flow are related to how these people are feeling or they're reporting they're feeling um, if you drive an axe through their skull then they show no outward signs of life anymore mm -hmm. so in these in this way we kind of like have all this ways to infer that the brain generates consciousness but if you're really honest we'll see that none of these pieces of evidence uh, negate the possibility that the brain does not generate consciousness mm -hmm. well so it's, it's kind of like it almost makes me think that like yeah in in, in in so far as you can enter the realm of interpretation you might just easily say that uh people with brains that's like like the local computers for npcs like what's like an npc a non-player computer like like if if indeed we can only be sure of our own consciousness then it's like oh well like they need that thing to like yeah. um to to generate some facsimile of, of behavior like my own and yeah, and yeah. for all i know like yeah but that, why would there yeah i guess um, I mean, there is a certain form that these computers take and it looks like brains to you. Mm -hmm. You never, I don't think you actually have ever any evidence that you have a brain. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Well, I mean, like, you could, you people could. People can tell you that this is what we're like, this is your brain or whatever. Well, I mean, you'd have to like, you know, take an incision, cut open a piece of soul, skull, um, get a mirror, you know. But that doesn't guarantee that there's, I mean, it's just everything. Visual representation. Is your perception of what it is. Mm -hmm. And well, we might come to this later or may not, but there is this idea that this supposedly external world that we are surveying when we look around is already your mental reconstruction mm -hmm. of the external world. This is something we mm -hmm. talked about that I, I feel like does yeah does a does a, a great service for for compelling your argument forward. Is is yeah. I don't I don't there you've described it a few times and and now I sort of have like a yeah. a visual intuition for it, but I, I don't know that I could articulate yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Well, one way that I can, I've tried to articulate is that as I sit on this sofa and I see you, the normal uh, physics way of unpacking what that means is that there are light rays that come from outside this room, from the sky, and then they hit your skin and then they're reflected or they're bounced off through my, into my eyes. And then there's this uh, complex phenomenon that takes you through the different visual streams and ultimately it's represented in some way in my brain. So notice how this whole chain of um, of um, of happenings of, of of a chain of cause and effect is broken at some point between what's happening outside of me and what's happening inside of me. Let's break it at the level of the eye. So everything that happened before is supposedly happening in the external world. Like for example, outside now it's like mid afternoon and the sky is bright and the light is coming in through the window and it's bouncing off your skin. But everything that I'm experiencing, including the supposedly external part of the process, is already the internal representation. It's the reconstruction. This is the reconstruction. Mm -hmm. So the conceptual layer that we are putting on top of it and saying this is the external part and this is the internal part is just a recategorization of something that is entirely internal into something that's inferred to be external. Everything is internal. So the this supposed 
external world where there is external light hitting an external object is forever unobserved it's elusive you you can yeah, yeah so if you're really even if you're really honest and if you're really right that this is how light works then you actually have no other independent way of observing what that external world is than through your internal reconstruction so the in the external world we don't really know what the sky looks like except through our own internal reconstruction i don't know what benam in the real world looks like because this is benam in my mental world mm -hmm. so everything so in that sense well there is there is this idea that um there was this non-duality teacher who talked about it and he said you know we, we look around and we take a certain subset of our sensory stimuli like let's say a visual stimuli we see that there's a certain subset of our visual stimulus that looks kind of like long elongated and brown has like toes and fingers and we call that our body and everything else is the external world if you really think about it everything is your body mm -hmm. because the 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 boundary between the subset of sensory stimuli that you call your body versus what is outside your body is a mental categorization. This whole world that you're immersed in is at once the external world and you. There is no separation between you. Where you're drawing the boundaries arbitrary. And there are like multiple ways to attack it. One could be to say that there is no other external world save for what you experience. So there's no use of keeping to talk about this hypothetical thing. And then there is the other notion of saying there is no internal world. Everything is external because you can't ever find the perceiver mm -hmm. in this. Everything is being experienced. And I think a lot of non-duality people use this language to say, okay, let's not talk about it this way. Let's just say that the separation between self and other is illusory. Mm -hmm. And then what remains is just one and you're free to call it whatever you want. I can say that this is my mental image of Benam and there exists no external Benam. Or you can say this is all the external world and there is no perceiver because the perceiver has no quality of their own except to reflect the external world. And uh, so, um, you know. But as scientists, once again, this is one very uh, deeply embedded notion that we go around with is that there's a separation between me and the world. Mm -hmm. And there's this dualistic view that there is an observer and the observed which I think is deeply unscientific if you really get down to it. Well, and I guess, I guess what's, what's more interesting then is, is that um, <laughs> science doesn't need that particular assumption no. to still be true. No. That's, 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 that's the yeah. maybe like the big kicker is it's like... Yeah. Um, it can yeah. at best become the motivation for biased science that will give you wrong results. <laughs> <laughs> if you have beliefs in excess of the data, that's usually what it ends up doing. Mm -hmm. Is it motivates certain, you know, implicitly biased investigations with implicitly biased answers, which is why I think science has had to reinvent itself so many times through paradigm shifts mm -hmm. is because people, whether they realized it or not, were falling prey to certain modes of thought that they didn't realize were not scientific. Mm. Um, so at best, or not at best, but like at most it can like any effect that it can have is not to negate sense, but to like lead it down uh, wrong paths. So um, it's not always innocuous. So the beliefs that you carry around, don't think that it stays away from your science because at the end of the day, a sci science may be clinical and detached, but the scientific endivore is a very human endivore. 
and the people who are engaged in the scientific end of war in any particular generations uh, in any particular generation are vulnerable to the same human fallibilities that any other human is so if the thousand or ten thousand or so people all tend to believe all tend to share the same biases to like for example the bias that um, oh this is me this is my body and the rest is whatever even though um, even though through a careful discussion they will all individually agree that that's not true the effect of 24 7 carrying around that bias could be to lead scientific questions and answer them in ways that make things worse not better mm-hmm. when it comes to understanding the world or getting more clarity um, and one of the ways i think it might be mudding up the waters is in continually asking materialistic questions about the nature of consciousness mm-hmm. see, if you just get stuck in that mode of thought you don't even know that it's not the answers that are wrong it's the questions that are wrong <laughs> and so there's no way to get c- correct answers if the way that you're asking the questions is wrong mm-hmm. so I'm not necessarily saying that there is no use for it, but I just feel like this is one of those areas where you need to really sit down and be very careful mm-hmm. about your implicit biases and assumptions. It's the human brain coming up against itself. There is there is the opportunity there for pause. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't be rash about this, okay? You're using the same tool to investigate itself. In the physical world, we have seen this take the form of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. If you get down to the level of investigating um, particles that have this uncertain nature to their properties, you end up using um, other scientific instruments that are of the same scale. And so the uncertainty in their own nature is reflected in the uncertainty of what you can find out about the particle. Mm -hmm. And there's no way to resolve that problem. It's like an irreconcilable limit of knowledge. And a different version of it, I guess, is the brain trying to understand itself. Uh, like a third version of it might be Gödel's incompleteness theorem, that if a single um, formal system tries to derive itself in its entirety, it will fail. Mm-hmm. So this is why I feel like I mean, you know, there is some scope for leaving the scientific method aside for a moment and sitting down and you know, talking philosophy for a little bit before we start on the science. Like I think it's time for a little philosophy and see can we even ask these questions about the human mind in the way that we are asking them so um yeah okay so this part i hadn't planned like we just talked about all this like non-dual stuff but i guess this is a good ending point um i remember you raised your eyebrows when you said when i said three hours (laughs) (laughs) this is i mean we have reached like midway point and we're and it's at already three hours. Yeah, well, a little less than three hours. Yeah, we started late. Yeah. But, um, yeah, okay, so this is a good ending point. And in the next next part of this conversation, I'll be talking about, you know, what, what, what some of the notions are about this uh, simulation theory, what kind of simulation. We've talked about what it, the limits of our knowledge. But we'll talk a little bit about Maya, which is like a Hindu, an ancient Hindu idea of the world being an illusion or a simulation. What exactly does it mean when we say that it's a simulation or an illusion? Is it true? Is it false? Is it when we say illusion, does it mean that it doesn't exist? Therefore, you can be a nihilist and go around doing whatever the fuck you want. Or are there patterns to be found even in this illusory game? And finally, we'll talk a little bit about 
I'll talk a little bit about some of my own personal experiences. And then finally, we'll talk a little bit about if this really is a simulation, what kind of simulation, what kind of game is it? Are there properties of this game? And that part will be kind of fun. Um, it's like, even 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 if we decide, we, we, we throw up our hands and we say, oh, there are all these huge swaths of unknown, like we don't really know, what can we still tell about the nature of this game? And part of the answer takes the form of science. There are some like mechanistic rules we have figured out, but then there are other rules that can't really be pinned down or derived intellectually, but they continually keep appearing as little anecdotes like in our daily experience. So I wanna talk a little bit about that nature of the game, uh, which might provide some clues as to what the final objective of the game might be, but no guarantees. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. That's cool. it. Yeah. Uh, we should just do this every day. That's so nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining this conversation in the Room of Lives. In the next and final part, we discuss my take on the kind of cosmic game that I suspect life is, motivated by some teenage experiences that were rather traumatic. If this game is illusory, is it also illusory that we are separate from other players in this game? and the game itself? Does this game really allow free will? Why is the game often so difficult and paradoxical? Is it a zero-sum game? And what is the role of love? Do people ever wake up from this game? We connect these discussions to Eastern religious ideas of Maya, the illusory world, Advaita or non-duality, and Shunyata or emptiness.